Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision and our brand new season, The Fintech Fuse. This is Theo, your host for this episode. And today we are super delighted to welcome Kate Drew, Director of Research at CCG Catalyst, to the show. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I'm still really excited that I actually get to meet you face to face recently um, in New York. And I look forward to spending more time with you and the team. Uh, but before we talk more about what's coming down the road, let's kick off our conversation. And can you tell listeners a little bit about how you get into banking and fintech? Because it seems like oftentimes people say they either fall into fintech or fintech and banking found them. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about your story. Yeah, I, I have to say I probably fall into that group of people. <laughs> um, I, I have to be honest about that. I, I started um, in equity research um, and I was covering mostly technology stocks. This was years and years ago. I was working at Value Line, which is one of the oldest independent sell-side research firms in in New York. Um, and they put me on Amazon, Google. Like I had an, just an incredible lineup of stocks and, but definitely not fintech focused or even financial services banking focused. I wasn't covering any banking, banking stocks or, or anything like that. But this was like around the time, like before Amazon was like really making money and everybody was still kind of banking on Jeff Bezos and his vision. And I became like really fascinated by this idea of of banking on on growth um, among these technology companies and just like the belief in in their runway um, because in in equity research you know your analysis is is based on earnings and so it, it was like really hard for me to do some of the modeling on these companies but like incredibly fascinating and so I decided that I really wanted to lean into that. And I made this shift from equity research to market research. So covering sort of the technology space at a higher level and, and really digging more into the trends and, and what drives what. And I moved over to business insider intelligence, which is called insider intelligence e-marketer now. But back then it was just business insider intelligence. It was the market research arm of business insider. Um, and I joined as an editor. And they put me on the fintech vertical because I had, I guess, I had a background in finance technically. Um, so, but not a background in banking. So, so that was interesting. And I just, at that point, the, the fintech vertical was only about six months old. I joined Sarah Kachansky, who was the, the lead analyst um, on, on fintech at the time. And I know you know Sarah very well. And she and I really hit it off and sort of, you know, built it together. Um, and then she she left to go to 11FS and I stayed on for a little bit longer. And over time, I, I kind of just, you know, really felt like I needed more experience about the things that I was writing about. So I had learned a lot about, you know, the fintech space and how it impacts banking and the intersection there, but I had never worked inside of a bank. Um, and that's how I shifted into consulting because I thought, you know, being able to work with bankers and with fintechs, you know, on the ground would kind of help to better inform my perspective. 
Um, and I've been happily doing that for the last three or four years. You know, I, I primarily write about the space, but I, I write not only based on the data and the research that I'm doing, but also from my own experience. So I would raise my hand and say I never work in the bank. My background is also not in finance. My background was in tech. Um, I did tech for 15 years. And then as luck would have it, I fell into fintech and longevity. So that was my journey. Um, but I, I, I do always tell people, I'm like, just don't hold it against me. I never worked in a bank before. So everything I know and talk about is because work working with consumers uh, from the consumer lens. So, geez. Maybe I need to, maybe I need to learn from you and maybe get inside the belly of the beast a little bit. I don't know. Uh, well, maybe too late to, start. to be fair, I've only, I've only worked inside of a bank as a consultant. Um, so I've never been a banker. Uh, it's a slightly different angle. It is a slightly different angle. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your writing because you do write a lot. I loved your reports, by the way, um, for those of you listening and had not, um, had the chance to look at Kate's report, please do do that and go follow Kate uh, on LinkedIn or look at CCG Catalyst. So you publish a ton. I don't know how you find time to do that. It was it was amazing. It is amazing. What are some of the favorite things that you like to write about? Mm, so I think anyone who does read, you know, what I write will know that perhaps my favorite topic is banking as a service. I by far write about it more than anything else. Um, just sort of this idea of, of fintechs and banks partnering on delivery specifically is kind of how I think about it. Um, but probably like one level above that is my interest in the intersection of banking and fintech, right? And, and banking as a service or embedded finance is just like a really great example of that today. Um, and I think, you know, just the concept of delivery in financial services is something that I've been thinking about a lot. So can you reimagine it through a banking as a service model, maybe um, that that is really centered around, you know, fintech? Sure. But then what about some of these other use cases that are more on the embedded finance side? Can you begin to think about what it looks like for really big brands to to offer financial services. So it's really like so much more. I think we use these buzz terms a lot, um, BAS or embedded finance or what have you. But really, like a big focus of mine right now is thinking about delivery and how we reimagine delivery differently. I actually... Um, just published a report on this topic a couple of weeks ago. It's called Reimagining the Last Mile in Banking. Um, so that's that's really like a, a big, big theme for me right now um, is delivery. And then on the other side of that um, is data. I've been writing a lot about data, driving efficiency, um, and sort of especially in the context of all of the activity around AI, how can you tie that back to a really good data strategy first. Um, so that has also been been a big focus. And also that that also ties into that and, and open banking, which is also tied to data. All of those things also tie into delivery 
in a really neat way, because these are the things that enable you to deliver financial services in a more seamless way to to the consumer. And I mean, obviously you're consumer obsessed, so I'm sure you think about this a lot too. I like to think of it as things that I've been able to play with and consume. So one of my favorite topics of late is Apple Wallet and, you know, Apple Savings Account and all of that and what that means. Because I I remember quite a few years ago now, wasn't one of the things that we love to say is, you know, the Amazon banking, the Amazon banking, and then that kind of quieted down. And then you had the Apple Card and the Apple Card came about people like, well, geez, we thought Apple would do something more innovative than offering a credit card. And then they do the cash back and then they do the um, the the wallet. You can do the um, allowance for children and then they do the savings account. So you see the layer and layer and layer approach and it's fascinating to watch. Um, I'm always curious to see what people think about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's funny because it ties into what I was just saying, right? Apple is a master of delivery. Yes, delivery in, in everything that they do. And I mean, I totally agree with you. We talk about what is the Amazon of banking? What is, you know, the, the U.S. version of a super app? Like, I think, you know, if we really had to answer that question today, Apple probably has the best argument for it. Um, they have a very thoughtful strategy. They also have something that not a lot of other tech companies have, which is a tremendous amount of trust from the consumer that has been built around their ability to protect data. Um, so I think, I mean, they're incredibly well positioned. And as a consumer myself, like if I take sort of my analyst hat off for a second, as a consumer myself, I use Apple Wallet constantly. I use the card. They have incredible analytics. Like it is a very seamless offering and it is designed incredibly well because Apple is also a master of design. See, the master of experience, right? And then when they started offering, when they were talking about buy now, pay later, I'm like, oh my God, please don't go down that road. Um, I haven't tried it. Um, I think that's probably like the only product I had not tried. Um, I'm always curious to see in the end how they all tie everything together. Because I remember when they were first toying around the idea of touching money. Um, Some people were saying, you know, maybe it would be like the health app, you know, how they have the circles. And if you Mm -hmm. finish how many miles and steps and whatnot, you complete the circle and they nudge you to keep going. I would love to see something like that, like Apple using the power of the data, how much they know about us, where we spend, how much we spend, et cetera, to nudge us in a direction that, you know, would be better for consumer financial well-being. I mean, you look at what they're doing with the um, savings account, they, you can put all the money in there and it just grows in the background for you. Um, What if we do more and help people with rainy day funds? That would be amazing. Yeah, I think that that would be amazing. There's also then other kind of use cases that, you know, could either be very good or very bad, depending on how it's executed. But like, given all the data that they have, it it wouldn't be surprising if, you know, you could use that data to improve your insurance premiums, for example. I mean, that could go, you know, either way, right? Because you don't want to punish people 
Um, but, you know, if you could use it for good as in a way to kind of drive incentives toward healthy behavior and, and help people really take control over that part of their life, I think that would be extremely valuable too. So let's see what else is going to be next for Apple. Okay. Now, one of the um, toughest thing to do, and, and I'm, I'm sure you know a lot about this since you do work with different stakeholders tightly, is trying to figure out what priorities that they need to invest in. Um, what are some areas of interest you are seeing right now? I'm almost scared to say say the two words, artificial intelligence, because that's what everyone is talking about. Um, I can't get through one day or one conference day without hearing something about AI and Gen AI and, and, and whatnot. But there's devil in the details. I mean, what are some of the smaller banks and credit unions doing versus what are some of the larger institutions doing? Yeah, I think, I mean, the larger banks at the tone for sure, right? But I think that those are two very different conversations. Um, all of the bigger banks, they have AI hubs. They're doing a ton of research. They have a ton of staffers, right? Smaller institutions, I think, are struggling to break through the noise in a lot of ways. You know, I talk to a lot of banks that are sort of mid-market to smaller community institutions, and I am hearing things like, well, how are, how do we define AI? How do we really define the use cases? Like, what are the risks involved? I have all of these vendors coming to me wanting to pitch me on things and fintechs wanting to pitch me on things saying that they do AI. How do I know that it's really AI? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that they are really, really struggling with. And then there's another piece of this that's kind of the elephant in the room, right, which is a lot of those institutions are still in large part struggling with the basics, right? How do we modernize our infrastructure so that we can actually build on some of these things so that we can make use of of AI and, and things that are coming down the pipeline? So I think that is probably like the biggest focus from like a technology investment standpoint, which is investing in table stakes now, making sure that they're on par with the rest of the market from a digital standpoint and from an integration standpoint, you know, the ability to eventually um, make use of these new capabilities. They're just not there yet from an infrastructure standpoint. And like data strategy also goes into that, like what are their data capabilities, how much access do they have to their data? You know, how usable is it? All of that stuff needs to happen first, right? So I think that's really, that's really probably where most of the effort is going today, even if most of the chatter is around, is around AI specifically. But again, like, you know, when I'm having these conversations, I'm getting a lot of questions around, like, what is the actual value? And the truth is, obviously, like, and, you know, I would love to get your perspective on this, too. But, like, it seems like we just don't know yet. Like, we know it's going to be transformative. Um, but it's still just so early. It is. It is really early. And it's fascinating to see some of the approach that different institutions are are doing and taking and how media reports on it. So I'll give you an example. Recently, um, Morgan Stanley... I think it was Morgan Stanley, said that, is it Morgan Stanley? Could be, I'm forgetting things. One of the big firms, one of the big Wall Street firms, they said, you know, they're using AI and, and wealth management. And everyone got so excited. They're like, yes, um, you know, finally, 
we have a big firm that's actively coming out and saying they're using, you know, AI and wealth management. But if you dig through the details and you go through the layers of exactly what they say they're using it for, they're using it to automate some of the backend paperwork that mm-hmm. the humans, uh, the 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 uh, the advisors are, are doing. So instead of you know them spending time to do paperwork, they are using that to automate the system. They aren't using it to like automate wealth advice. They're just doing the back office stuff. Um, so it's it's interesting to see. On one hand, yes, I see the potential. I see what it can do. On the other hand, I think. We also glorify it because perhaps we want it to do more than it can actually do. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to watch. I do get worry. I think it's, it's my tech side creeping up. It's, it's a fun, shiny toy, but I don't see the level of care in a lot of cases that needs to be put in place since we are a industry that is highly regulated that has to do with movement of money. This is not about you putting in in uh, in the uh, commerce e-commerce environment. You know, oops, I got the wrong recommendation for a book or outfit or something, um, or oops, I got the wrong joke. This is about actually helping people get from one place to the other, and giving the wrong advice can have really detrimental impact. And like, just to that Morgan Stanley example, or the wealth management example, um, I believe that in in those use cases, and and in financial advice, like one of the things that's really important, and I've done some research on this, not a ton, but like, from my understanding, one thing that's really important there is that you can explain the decisions that you're making. Um, And if you cannot explain the decisions that artificial intelligence is making, then you really can't use the technology for that use case. And so explainability is extremely important. I actually think wealth management, actually like giving financial advice is probably one of the most difficult use cases to implement. It is very, very far down the line. Um, And so it doesn't surprise me at all that they're actually using it to automate the back office. But I think you know, my perspective, and and to be fair, you know, like, I, I don't work in the wealth management space, we don't particularly, you know, operate in that space. But I would not want to be getting financial advice from anyone other than a person right now, just because of the nuance that is required in order to do that, and the importance of me being able to understand the decisions that are being made. agree um at the end of the day this is our our financial future (laughs) um i wouldn't mind you know using it as something to augment something you're doing but i i want to talk to a human and i have a hard time finding the right human to begin with let alone trusting it to something that is completely faceless that you can't see Um, so that's a whole different discussion not for a different day um let's let's talk about something else um that we've been seeing, and I credit Jim Perry for this question, actually, because him and I had a really long discussion when we met in New York recently. Um, and it has to do with, do we actually need 
community contexts and, and what role they play. And, and, and this is the context, right? Because recently we saw fintechs like Daylight for LGBTQ that closed shop. Um, we saw Greenwood that acquired Kingley, um, which is their rifle for serving the black community. At the same time, we also saw, um, Roger that's being launched, uh, to support U.S. military and is backed by Citizens, Citizens Bank of Edmond. So we see def- different flavors of fintechs that are serving specific communities. And, and I love Jill for that. So the question is, is there really a space for community fintechs or should we go back and say, look, Main Street banks, perhaps this is time for you to rethink community, to rethink how you're serving different communities. Because Jim's point was, he said, you know, while it was interesting and was good that we are actually paying attention to LGBTQ community, what we forget is that we tend to paint them with a broad stroke, but not everyone in that community is the same. Their needs are very different. So to think that a particular fintech can actually solve the problems for the entire demographics is kind of wild. Yeah, I think I think that this speaks to sort of a, a broader trend that I'm seeing at the kind of crossroads of fintech and banking. And that trend is that for a long time, like a lot of the fintech conversation was focused around consumer fintech and fintechs doing the experience better. And now we're starting to see funding flow much more to, towards B2B fintechs and fintechs that can enable banks to do what they're doing better. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. I think that this sort of serving niche communities may just be another example of where fintechs pushed the banks to be better. And that's not a bad place to be for the fintech community. I want to be really clear there. It doesn't mean that there is an opportunity in the, in the fintech community. It just means that there's a reframing around the, the mandate or, you know, the reason for existence from competitor to partner a little bit more. And this is a really, really good example because I think maybe that when it comes to serving communities with traditional banking services, banks are the ones that are best positioned to do it. The economics for a fintech neobank in this space are just like really, really hard. You cannot rely on interchange. Like that's been very clear. Um, But the idea of better serving these communities is a good one, right? Um, And so I think institutions that have been community driven for a really long time have a huge opportunity to do this if they pick the right demographics that makes sense, you know, like Citizens Bank of Edmond, there's a reason that Roger is is military focused, right? They did that for a reason. So I think if if you pick the right demographic and you have the tech to support it, you pick the right tech to support it, I think there's a huge opportunity for um, traditional banks to make a real difference in this area. I like how you frame it. See, that's why I like talking to people. Um, this is this is this is this is really super helpful. And I like what you were talking about with respect to how 
fintechs, the relationship between fintechs and banks are changing. And that's something that, you know, quite a few have talked about. Um, so this is indeed a good trend to watch. Now, let's close with this. Um, between banks, fintechs, big techs, and I don't know who else is out there, what do you think the future will hold when it comes to banking services, particularly in the U.S.? Do you have any crystal ball predictions for us? I think I think we're going to continue to see financial services embedded in non-bank channels, but they're not necessarily going to be financial channels. So if I'm breaking that down, like it's not necessarily going to be, you know, banks putting their services into a fintech app necessarily. Maybe maybe that will still exist. But I think that there's a much bigger opportunity here. I think we're going to see more bigger brands like Apple saying, can I offer you an account to top up or can I offer you a short term loan at checkout? And then from there, the way that we interact with financial services is going to change quite a lot. Um, and by that, I mean the way that consumers interact with financial services, it's going to become a much bigger web of interactions. Um, and I think it's going to become really, really important to be able to aggregate all of those interactions and get a full picture of your financial life, right? And so if I were a bank today, I would be making sure that I have the data capabilities, um, and dare I say the AI capabilities, to to make that happen, right? I would want to be positioning myself to be that central hub for the consumer when their interactions kind of grow in complexity and are happening far outside of far outside of the bank's walls. Um, that's sort of where I see the market heading now. I don't know how long that is going to take, and and I could end up being totally wrong, but. Um, it's definitely, you know, what I see taking shape. And it is also, and I always try and do this, like to not just think about it from the industry standpoint or from the market standpoint, but also I am a consumer of banking services. So how do I think about it? Right. And, and that is something that I would want to see for my own financial life too. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's kind of an important point as well is that like, I see this, this evolving, but I also, you know, because I'm a consumer as well, the utility in in such a world i think you're spot on especially given lately what's been happening with chatter about certain financial institutions um shall we say trying to gain control of the open banking infrastructure in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a land grab. Um, that will be really interesting to, to watch. Let's hope that it won't become a monopoly because at the end of the day, we do want to see different institutions and stakeholders and players getting access to the data, to the information, because that's how it will eventually benefit more small businesses and consumers alike. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a believer that we should own our data. And we should be able to use it the way that we want to ensure that we get the best experiences possible. Yes, absolutely. Um, so before we close, Kate, um, I will be seeing you shortly. Um, what is the event that your team will be hosting soon and where? Tell us a little bit. Yes, more. yes. Um, so we are 
going to be hosting the Bank Fintech Fusion Conference. Um, it's October 18th to the 20th in Phoenix. Um, and anyone who's interested can and can find out more information at bankfintechconference.com. But really, our focus is to create just an incredibly intimate feeling event that brings together international fintechs, bankers, and, and you know, people who are really thinking forward um, in the banking space for, for three days and to really, you know, curate the conversations that should be happening at the intersection of, of banking and fintech. CCG Catalyst is really focused on that intersection. You know, we have a banking practice and we also have a fintech practice and we really see ourselves as a, as a connector. Um, and so, you know, we had a large part in, in organizing this conference and, and we're hoping to kind of bring that theme and, and that purpose um, to this event. So I'm really excited about it. I'm also really excited to, to see you in person again. And I think it's going to be a wonderful couple of days. Um, it's starting to get cold in New York, too. So I'm excited to be heading to some warm weather. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, we it's getting a little cold here in DC too, but it does fluctuate up and down a little bit. But uh, anywhere that you can bring me to have thoughtful conversations in a good location, um, I'm off for it. So I do look forward to meeting you and um, to being spending some time with Lita and Alex and everyone else and Sarah is, is going to be wonderful. So uh, I do look forward to it. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. And for the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week.